This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkara, and more importantly, today I get the pleasure of speaking uh, with Dr. Robert Jersey, who is um, at Manhattan College. We'll be speaking about a really fascinating uh, new book uh, in the field of religious studies uh, that obviously impacts other subfields. It's called uh, Futures of Artificial Intelligence, Perspectives from India and the U.S. It's a brand new 2022 OUP. Uh, Robert, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Tell us a little bit about the 30,000-foot view interest um, in uh, religious studies and artificial intelligence. So I think this is a growing domain, right? Uh, 20 years ago, there were just a couple of kind of prescient scholars who were talking about Mm -hmm. artificial intelligence with a theological lens, people like Anna First and uh, Noreen Hertzfeld. And then and, and over the past 20 years, it's become increasingly obvious and important that scholars of religion have something to say that's that's constructive for our social understanding of AI. When we think about what AI could be, you know, when you think about questions of like, could AI be a person or what have you, obviously, theological angles are important there. How you're going to deploy AI into the world around us, what kind of purposes you want to put it to, those are things that are relevant from religious uh, perspectives. And even how do religious people then take advantage of AI in their own uh, practice. And so there's there's now so many different angles and that's just a few different ways in which you might think about the way AI is, is it intersects with our concerns in religious studies. And so this writing project, you know, what was the genesis? My very first book in 2010 was called Apocalyptic AI, Visions of Heaven and Robotics, Artificial Intelligence and uh, Virtual Reality. And it was about transhumanist people in the robotics and AI universe who wanted to or want to upload their minds into robots and live forever. And when I first read about that in about 2003 or something, I thought, man, that's about the most religious thing going right now, <laughs> you know, this, this pursuit of technological salvation. And then when I was doing work in India, which you and I have had the pleasure to get to chat with about a little bit, you know, I, I did field work in India twice in the past 10 years on the, thanks to the good people of Fulbright Nehru program, I started thinking about, well, what about those ideas as they exist, these ideas of uploading our minds into robots, of building transcendently intelligent godlike robots, how do those play out when we think about the international context, right? Uh, how do they appear or, or not in the Indian context? And what is the relevance of how ideas about technology? You know, we, we have a lot of in, work in history of science and technology about the transfers, the movements, the global circuits of technologies but we don't have an awful lot of scholarship of thought about how ideas about technology move, 
right? And so that was what was at stake for me is I had had all this previous stuff about AI. And then I was in the Indian context and, and at the Indian Institute of Science and at the National Institute of Advanced Studies. And, and I was working with on occasion with people in industry and hacker culture and lots of academics. And it was like, well, how are these ideas moving? And in what ways is that good? Is it bad? Is it productive? Is it not? How's it transforming the global appearance, uh, presence of technology? Yeah, it's a fascinating work on a number of levels. I'm trying to think of which question to ask next, which is rare. Um, but what um, what would you say? Actually, no, I'll save that. Um, um, walk us through the structure of the book. So the structure of the book is actually pretty unusual. I think you, having read it, you'll probably you probably would have wondered as you were going through it, right? Because what I was trying to do was so for me kind of novel in what I was hoping to accomplish, which was how do we think about these ideas that are circulating about AI, AI as they're moving in and out of cultural context, and, and there wasn't a lot uh, to build on to understand how that might be happening. So I kind of start with the cultural context of science and technology in modern India, going back to the British Raj and how is it that science and technology um, first were, were de-skilled from India by British colonization and then reintroduced in different ways as Indians um, sought their own independence, um, you know, politically, but also scientifically and technologically. Uh, so I start with that. And how is it that technology was being reintroduced and what are the religious ramifications of that in largely colonial India? And then I shift gears and I say, okay, Given that, we now have to just sort of talk about what's at stake in the technologies that are going to occupy the whole rest of the book. And so that becomes a kind of shortened version of that stuff I did in Apocalyptic AI. One chapter, but where I got to revise some of it and improve it, I think. So I got to do a lot of that a little bit better than I had done it 10, 10 12 years ago or whatever. Um, and then we start moving, talking about how transhumanist ideas circulated first in the 20th century and then into the 21st century in India and how the AI side of that transhumanist, that big tent transhumanism, how the AI enters into it. And then finally, I, uh, the, the last major chapter is about how different perspectives lead us to think about the technology differently and might have real ethical ramifications in an era where we have um, machine algorithms that are riddled with bias, right? And the last thing we need is a more effective way to, to, to you know, uh, structure society around our existing biases, right? We got to fix that thing. We got concerns about surveillance. We've got these real political concerns around AI technologies. And so if we take seriously that our ideas about technology are moving around, we should consider a kind of symmetrical approach to that, not just how does this idea that I've called apocalyptic AI, this belief in transcendent machines and mind uploading, how does it get to India? But what happens in India when it gets transformed and what's already in India that might be leveraged to think about technology in a good way so that what we're doing is collaboratively and globally starting to build a sense for what we want out of the machines. So the structure is pretty unusual, I think. I think most readers will find it pretty unusual, but hopefully people will find that it kind of holds together with a kind of path that, that takes us from where the technologies, you know, the, the, the conversation around technology to the conversation around today's technology. Well, you're telling a story and you're, you're panning from camera one to camera two, and you say at the outset, it's clear why you pan 
to the different you know why you you change views yeah they all come together so it's 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 uh followable if that's a word <laughs> uh, it is now behold um 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 what would you say is the key uh takeaway uh argument thrust of the work is I probably should have just anticipated that question, right? And and That's because right. The, thinking aloud is allowed. Yeah, the, because <laughs> of the different directions, I think the key that I want, yeah, you know what? The, what I really want people to come away with is that our conversation about AI needs to be global. Mm. Uh, and and I'm doing work right now with colleagues in Korea, so I'm really interested in the idea of how is it that we can develop AI ethics with a sense for our shared cultural resources that so that's that's what I really want and so by the time someone gets to the end I hope they're thinking oh India not only interprets these American ideas in a particular kind of way and that might maybe have an effect on how Americans are thinking about those same ideas but but Indians also have some of their own ideas that are worth considering thinking about and and designing for because the world that we that we're trying to build, um, could and should be better than it is. And so I hope when someone gets to the end, they're really thinking, oh yeah, these AI technologies are super important. There's already an existing narrative about what they're doing, but that narrative couldn't, it doesn't have to be the only narrative. It could be in conversation with other narratives and we could work together to, to, for our own mutual benefit. So what are some of the contours of the American narratives uh, versus the Indic narratives that you've discovered? So the, the American narrative, first of all, emerges right out of the kind of um, secularized Christianity that we see in, in the United States. Um, that The goals of personal salvation, that the world is moving according to a providential plan you know, at one point in time, American Christians would have told you, yeah, God has a plan for America. It's going like this. And in fact, American Christians were very interested in technology. Uh, David Nye has a wonderful book about this called America is Second Creation. Um, David Noble's book, Religion and Technology, is very important about the Euro-American context. But this, this idea that the world is going somewhere, it, there's a plan. And where it's going is the salvific world. It's going to save the world. The world will be saved and humanity will be saved in it. And that gets secularized right into the, the writings of AI thinkers and roboticists who are looking for a perfect new machine world. And they're looking for uh, us to be saved in that perfect new world in our own little immortal salvation. And they think that technologically that's just happening no matter what, right? That, that it's technological determinism in their world. The, the technology just determines what happens, just like God used to. So they've got this narrative. They've taken it wholesale out of Christianity. They've moved God out of it. And they're like, good, we're ready to roll, right? Um, that narrative doesn't have the same necessarily kind of force when you go to the Indian context, where, first of all, history is not seen in a linear fashion. Most uh, kind of Indian calendars and views of the universe are cyclical. And so the whole idea that it's necessarily progressing toward a particular thing is a dubious one. And uh, where in the Indian context, you might start looking at, well, what are the kinds of values beyond assumptions of technological determinism, beyond my own individual salvation, uh, and beyond kind of a sense, and, and this is a globally shared idea of capitalist efficiency and what have you, 
right? But capitalist efficiency is not. Max Weber might have felt like America invented capitalist efficiency, and maybe we did, but at this point, that's a global worldview, right? Uh, and But there are other ways of thinking about life that aren't just about short-term capitalist efficiency and that maybe have other kinds of goals. So in the Indian context, for example, I tried to think about... Um, a, how that cyclical universe works. And I had people tell me fascinating things. I mean, I had people raise their hands and say to me, hey, do you think Kalki, the, the final avatar of Vishnu, could come as artificial intelligence? And I was, you know, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm not a theologian. You tell me about it, right? Uh, and that's why the book cover art, which I, I love my book cover art. I had my tattoo artist do the book cover art. And it's this robotic Kalki, right? This Kalki comes at the end of the, the Kali Yuga to end this cycle of uh, history and to begin the new cycle. So one way to think is like, well, what exactly is the AI doing? Is it renewing the world in some way that helps us maybe even get back to other kinds of values? Uh, but also, I wanted to look at kind of South Asian values that are just most of the book kind of engage, lives in Hinduism. Um, but that's because most of my conversation partners, my interlocutors, they were they were Hindu. Uh, but there are South Asian visions of things like duty and what it means to have mutual duty toward one another. And I think those are values we could be talking about that aren't just about individual salvation, but what is our duty? What's my duty to you? Um, and if the machines start getting pretty smart, we need to talk about our mutual duty with them, right? Um, if that happens. So I think there are other kind of value systems that are worth talking about and, and, and that all build together for me as part of a fun conversation. Yeah, it's 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 fascinating on a number of levels. Um, one piece, you know, this idea of um, um, apocalyptic AI, right? I was actually, I just happened just by serendipity, just by serendipity, two things. One, uh, after we're finished with this hour, I, have, I happen to have a, a podcast book right after with uh, a scholar named Simon Broadbeck. So Mahabharata scholar, and he's got a new book out on yugas and uh -huh. uh, the, the the cyclical time in the Mahabharata. And I wish he'd had and, that book out a few years ago. And and and, and, and <laughs> don't we all? And <laughs> a, a wonderful book, among other things, is something that you wonder why no one's done it before <laughs> in the same way. Um, but but uh, you know why Krishna? Why is it that Krishna commences this most wretched yuga? But you know this, this cyclical time. But 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 just before this, I was, I was having a walk with uh, someone who was uh, trained as part of my um, uh, lineage, uh, wisdom teachings, etc. And and we we were um, actually musing about. Um, we we both sense that there'll be some challenges for sure uh, come November eighth. I think it's palpable. And um, we were talking about responses and we're in Canada and, you know, but nevertheless, yeah. you know, uh, and yes, things will get messy and things will go sideways. Yes, absolutely. But we were musing that unconsciously, whether folks are religiously minded or not, they've internalized this notion of the end of days is nigh or, or, or you know, you know <laughs> it's all it's going to be torn asunder. And I thought that, that's in stark contract contrast to we're here for hundreds of thousands of years and this is just the beginning of the Kali Yuga and uh, there are different mindsets involved in terms of, of, of length of time and also 
uh, an end uh, looming versus a, a transition looming that'll just inaugurate something different. And I, I, I firmly believe that. Um, to, to obviously crudely generalize, but uh, you know, civilizations internalize ideas, and as you're mentioning, secular-minded folks have internalized. Uh, religious uh, mythological ideas from Abrahamic traditions and similarly in Indic traditions, Puranic ideas, uh, there are uh, epic ideas, pun intended. They're absolutely internalized by uh, by folks, you know, th- thinkingly or unthinkingly. Yeah. And so yeah. I think I I I I don't think we can quite uh, overstress the notion of. A linear worldview versus a cyclical worldview, whether it's about the, the person reincarnating or, or the age itself uh, reincarnating, so to speak. And I think um, that's an apt thing to point to in this work in terms of um, what role, uh, the roles of AI, the responses to AI. Uh, um, we, there is no looking at something without a worldview. And yeah. worldviews come from these these ancient religious traditions. So random musings for me but anyhow that's um, something though that i've been trying to talk about in science and in robotics and ai for a, many years now this idea that the you know people who want to pretend that science is like cult value neutral culture neutral that's crazy scientists are raised in a cultural environment whether that cultural environment is the united states or it's canada or it's japan or it's india or it's south africa wherever you want to pick they're raised in a cultural environment that affects them in in significant and differing ways and recognizing how it's different is important to then figuring out what we want to leverage right like if you just let it kind of happen then you haven't contemplated whether it's a productive way to do it or not you know and we should contemplate that you know i come back to this idea over and over again that you know science is an as a methodology but there are folks who relate to it as an ideology and, 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 and they, they feel like, okay, well, science will save us. <laughs> it's sort of, uh, it's, 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 it's having existential, philosophical, um, spiritual needs that one is attempting to meet with the yeah. methodology for producing knowledge about the empirical <laughs> world. And so it's, 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 it's tricky. It's fascinating. Um, uh, I wanted to make sure we cover the major food groups uh, about your book. We've um, another important question that I'm going to ask before I'll allow you to ask whatever you'd like to ask. You mentioned that you wanted to ask some things as well, and of course, I'm happy to have a conversation. Um, uh, clearly, this is a, a far-reaching book. What sort of subfields um, might this impact, or what sort of you know, what sort of folks yeah. might be interested in reading this, whether at the Academy or beyond? I think my publisher would love to know that. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't, I, it doesn't matter. They already agreed to publish this. Right, right. For now. <laughs> um, you know, my hope, first of all, when I write a thing, I'm hoping that there's more weird people like me who want to read that thing. 
right? So when I was first writing about robots and, and AI and religion, I was like, surely there's some other weird people who find this kind of interesting. And that book, you know, it actually sold pretty all right for an academic book. I was pleased. And then I wrote a book about video games and religion. I was like, hopefully there's some folks who want to read this kind of thing. And it turns out video gamers only read things on the internet. <laughs> it got like widespread press in the gaming. It, it had a couple of big gaming sites that talked about it. And there were hundreds of commentators on the internet, but nobody bought the book. I sold one book that week. Um, so, you know, I, I keep hoping that the weird people like me will want it. Uh, and in this case, I think there's a Venn diagram with this book. Um, that I might be in the middle of a very strange Venn diagram. But, you know, first of all, I think if you're interested in religion and modernity, you cannot ignore robotics and AI, right? You may not like my book, fine. But like, if you're interested in how religion is operating in the modern world, you can't ignore AI. So, so one would hope people would find that worthwhile. If you're interested in what's going on in South Asia right now, there are little bits and pieces in there that you might find really fascinating. I mean, I, I did some archival work even to kind of uncover certain trends that were happening in say 1950s India and how um, certain scientists and scientific ideas were being thought about. So the idea of what's going on in modern India from 1950 to, or really, or I start earlier, but really the really kind of, I think my bigger contributions start happening maybe 1950-ish. But through 2022, I hope people who are just interested in South Asia, who are interested in what's going on in India, would find this very interesting. Of course, there's the religion and science camp that I'm, you know, kind of squarely in the middle. Anyone who does religion, science, and technology might might find this kind of relevant. Um, but also, I would hope people in the history of science and technology separately who are just interested in how sciences and technologies are operating in the global world. So there's like some different domains there. And I'm in the middle of all of those because I find all of those independently interesting areas. You know, I read in all of those areas. And then if you look at my bibliography, you'll find that I'm citing people from all those different areas because I find all that stuff pretty cool. Uh, and I hope that people from those different domains whether their interest is religion and modernity, whether their interest is in uh, the history of technology, um, th that they're looking at that going, oh, there's definitely something for me here, right? And uh, I tried to write it and, and you know, maybe you could tell me I, I failed, I don't know. I tried to write it in a prose that would be at least reasonably oh, it's accessible. accessible. It's definitely to, accessible, yeah, for sure. You know, people... In a, in a wide variety of kind of interest areas, that it wasn't just graduate students and professors who would find it, but maybe somebody reads it and they're like, oh, this chapter is one that I think my students would like, for example, uh, even if they don't think their students need the whole book. Um, so so I, I hope that people will find it generally. I don't like it when I read a book and I have to struggle a whole lot to, even though in the final chapter I talk about Foucault, I hate reading Foucault. Um, I find, and I hear in French, Foucault is much easier. Great. My French is, is like, I can order food. I can't read philosophy in French. And, and but, so I talk about Foucault, but listen, I try to do it. Let, let me tell you, I mean, I don't want to get into too much trouble here. I, I have French and let me tell you, Foucault is not fun it's not for better. me French. <laughs> <laughs> but anyhow you know it's not that Foucault's not smart of course Foucault's smart but some of it is just almost impenetrable to read and so there I am trying to you know engage some of Foucault's ideas about power 
uh, and the power of ideas and the way the way we are limited in how we can talk about things, right? Because that goes back to what you were talking about in these religious universes we grow up in, right? That we're habituated to particular ways of talking that actually constrain what we can say. And even as we're learning to say new things, right? And so I'm trying to do Foucault and talk about like AI and how we're inventing language about AI because we don't have all the resources we might want. We're having to draw on resources. So even then I'm trying to write in a way that someone, my reader doesn't hate me, right? <laughs> That's a big goal no, for me. No, it's accessible. Like, it, you know. it's, definitely, it's definitely lucid writing for sure. You know, there, there are some... Um, thoughts that you had uh you had this novel idea of perhaps asking me a question or two but maybe we could have a conversation were there there were certain things that you were interested in there there totally are uh you know because like, well, what would you like an opinion on then you, you, you mentioned the email that yeah you don't that... often get a chance to ask someone who read the thing you know um what they kind of engage so you know i actually have kind of a whole list of things <laughs> but let's well, I'm, start I'm, with I'm, one uh, of the things i'm, maybe I'm, that, I'm, that I'm pretty me. slow so tread lightly but yeah. go ahead That's so <laughs> given that this book engages you know ideas about the singularity about transcendent machine intelligence and that sort of thing and how ideas about ai have been exported into the indian context including one of the things I talk about is how some of those ideas are integrated into traditional Hindu theology, such as this idea that, you know, Kalki could be, could come to earth as AI. Uh, I'm curious whether some of the um, new religious movements or modified religious movements that appear here, do they resonate with your experience in South Asian religions and beyond, right? Do they, do you see relevance here happening in other ways that I didn't see that I wasn't aware of? In terms of the theologization of, of AI as Kalki? Yeah, well, uh, that as a, you, you know, a particular thing, but also just the kind of broader sort of new religious movement around computers and AI and, you know, what might be going on there. Does that feel like it resonates with yeah. other things that you've seen? Yeah, I think, I think there is um, one overarching comment I'll make is that um, in in my particular experience looking at South Asian phenomena and having known many South Asianists and South Asians, um, whether diasporic or, you know, from whichever South Asian nation, uh, there, there seems to be um, the, the ability to, um, uh, the boundaries between sacred and secular are very much an imposition to my mind. Mm. Uh, that don't naturally occur in terms of, you know, powerful ancient Indian priests, 19th in his lineage doing this, you know, this, this esoteric tantric ritual, but we'll whip out his iPhone in the middle of it to pull <laughs> up a PDF, PDF yeah. of yeah. maybe one of the bijas that he wants some clarity on, or there's no, that's not disjunctive. <laughs> right. So yeah. the idea one implicit idea that I see in the South Asian context that's really celebrated and taken to the nth degree is what we think of as divine Im imminence, mm. right? Uh, I think of it as shaktification. Anything can be shaktified, <laughs> right? Like you can shaktify your banana and eat it. Great. But we have that, you know, we have the host, we have correlates of food that's sacralized, obviously. But anything can be shaktified. The car can be shaktified. You can do a car puja. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so the assimilation of technology into the ritual sphere 
uh, is something that seems to be relatively seamless in the South Asian context. And so unsurprisingly, the assimilation to technological phenomenon into the imaginaire, into the, you know, into so ways, let, let me follow you know. up then. Let me follow up and ask you what you think it would look like. You know, already in the Indian context, you can go to temples that have things like animatronic gods, right? Like a a little a little a, a life size diorama of Krishna acting acting out or Durga killing the buffalo demon or whatever, right? What happened? What do you think will happen if AI gets really really interactive? Is that going to be something that starts replacing the central gods and shrines? Do you think that would be plausible that you could that, that it wouldn't just be tangential, but it might be central it, to the way people are practicing? It would vary, obviously, from situation to situation. But one of the fundamental um, notions at play is the is the is the importance of pranapatishta. So whether or not the AI is able to respond yeah. is not tantamount to being imbued with prana or ritually right. empowered. Right. And so prana petition would have to take place irrespective of what, what the substance or the configuration of the thing being uh, pranified. <laughs> <laughs> You're big on inventing some words today. Well, well, there are, well what choice do I have? <laughs> right. <laughs> Because, of course, we're like, you know, like Foucault says, we're trying to figure out how to talk about the things we're trying to talk about, right? Um, Given that we're trying to figure out how to talk about things, you know, in that final chapter, not the conclusion, but the the final main chapter, and I'm talking about ethical AI and how we might bring values to the table that might affect what we're trying to accomplish in the world – do you, were there cultural practices or ideas that you're thinking of from the South Asian context that don't appear in my book that you think would be, you know, valuable additions to how we talk? Because right now, ethical AI is a big damn deal. Yeah, we have to figure that yeah, out, right? Yeah, I think what's, what's important, yes, I mean, there's lots and lots there. Uh, but through the, uh, all of the shadarshanas, like all of the the, 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 the orthodox Hindu philosophical schools, for lack of a better um, uh, word, uh, uh, they're not schools. They're, they're they're worldviews, right? They all agree that you know it's the Atman that uh, that accrues karma, mm. and so in the absence of an Atman. Karma is not accruing. This is mechanistic. Yeah. So, so in the language of Sankhya, this would be the workings of Prakriti, not Purusha. Even the wor- sent the workings yeah. of sentient people are Prakriti. Like so much of what I'm doing right now is my Prakriti, not my Atman or my Purusha. Similarly, uh, just as human beings are biological machines propelled by Prakriti, so too would artificial beings be propelled by Prakriti. And I think that distinction, that theological philosophical distinction would be crucial in terms of um, the the thought experiment as to whether uh, um, Mr. Data is sentient or not. (laughs) So now you've entered into an argument I have with one of my dear colleagues. I wrote a paper with my colleague, Stephen Kaplan about Hinduism and AI. It's coming out in um, uh, Fraser Watson, Beth Singler's uh, Cambridge Companion to Religion and AI. And we were arguing about whether or not 
in Hindu philosophical traditions, and I know that's traditions, right, plural, whether one could think of an AI that could um, be conscious, right, that could partake of kind of ground level consciousness, right? And his position was, no, it, it, it can't do that. And I said, well, hold on a moment. First of all, if somebody tells me a robot can't have a soul, I usually ask them where they got souls from. And they say, well, from God. And I say, well, what makes God unable to put souls in robots? And they're like, well, I don't know. They just wouldn't. <laughs> I'm like, okay, so that's not a good argument, right? So let's go to the Hindu context. And, and I said, what about if, if you had a robot that was the robot form, let's say it's unconscious in a, in a kind of Hindu philosophical sense, but a robot form that can think better than people, can therefore make certain ethical decisions better than people, can practice, its, its, can practice ritual better than people. Well, when I die, maybe it would be karmically valuable for me to rebirth my, you know, to be reborn in a robot body instead of a, a biological body, because I'll make better progress toward release in the robot body, right? And so we, we, we keep arguing about this thing. And uh, what, do you, what do you think? Solve our argument for us. <laughs> yeah, well, whether or not, uh, so the most traditions in this context would hold that there are elements of creation which are jada and those are, that are chetana, those who are sentient and insentient, conscious or not conscious. And so whether or not uh, the, uh, consciousness, according to this tradition, whether or not Atman could incarnate, incarnate into uh, something mechanistic, I'll, I'll bracket that off. But certainly the mechanistic thing that's performing quite well has stemmed from elements which are dada and therefore would not be fundamentally enlivened with the presence of consciousness yeah. that's one way to you know we're not going to solve this today but that's one that's that's, <laughs> no, that's one, one approach one of, the, one of the things i love about these questions of religion and technology is you're looking at them getting solved in real time right? <laughs> like the real time practitioners have to make choices about what counts and what doesn't count. And that's one of the kinds of things that I try to push at in the book is this idea that what we think of religiously, first of all, it's not static. You can take a 2000 year old tradition, a 3000 year old tradition, and you modify it, right? You read it the way you read it now. You don't read it the way they did 3000 years ago. That's literally impossible to read a text like it was read two or 3000 years ago. So we're all rereading them and meanwhile, trying to solve all these technological questions that we have. What is the world going to look like, right? And we definitely want to know what, the, what we want the world to look like, right? In a world of increasing penetration of AI technologies, everything from surveillance to machine learning to, to military deployment of robotics, to autonomous vehicles, like, and your home, if you got a home Alexa or Google Home or whatever, like all these things are all around you and not enough of our time is being spent going, okay, what is it we're trying to accomplish other than selling products, right? Which, yay, we need an economy, right? But these, these fights over like the religion side, they happen kind of in real time, right? Of people trying to figure this out. Why do you think AI is such a threat to people? Well, I don't 
know that like when I think about threat, I think about climate change and species extinction. Those are the things that really worry me. Um, AI, the biggest threats that AI currently pose are their ability, is the ability of human beings to use AI in faster, quicker, more widespread fashion. So if you think about something like algorithmic bias, you're looking at if one judge is racist. There's only so many people that judge is going to interact with in the legal system. But if you build a machine learning algorithm that took a bunch of data from racist judges and then and then built its own understanding of jurisprudence and its own ideas about incarceration rates and recidivism and that sort of thing, then all of a sudden that AI could interact with way more people. So what's happening is not really different in the sense that it's just what the human beings might have done, but the scale changes. And when you think about things like military intervention, how much easier is military intervention? You know, and I speak of this as an American, we intervene in military conflicts in a lot of places. And every once in a while, I suppose that's justified. And, but, but from my own perspective, often it's not. And one of the key ways to prevent excessive military intervention is the political danger of loss of human life. But if all we have to do is send out a bunch of robots, nobody ever has to feel bad about that in our country regardless of how many people die in the other one. So it doesn't like, it's the human threat that I think is really what makes AI dangerous at this. I don't worry about AI taking over the world. I'm now worried about Terminator solution problems. Like software is too brittle. You know, you can imagine Skynet, like trying to launch a nuclear, like, war against humanity and then the blue screen of death comes to it you know skynet's like all ready to take over the world and then like poof you know error code xyz three zero zero you know this long error code comes up and then the robot can't take over the world so i'm not i'm not really threatened by that but i am threatened by the human use of technology in ways that exacerbate our worst instincts instead of our best. And we could go the other way with that. We could take the technology and think, what is what's best in our cultures and in our lives? And how do we leverage that in our entire design process? How do we start from a position that says, here's what we're trying to get done and, and then build things that hopefully move us in that direction rather than in a different one? Is this work that you hope to continue? Yeah, I mean, that's why I'm working right now with my collaborators in Korea. We're talking a lot about uh, AI ethics and what kinds of values uh, that are kind of unique to Korean culture might be thought about in a productive global sense. I mean, some cultural values are so tightly intertwined with the way you're raised <laughs> that the rest of us can only loosely understand where you're coming from. But even that's productive, right? To have a loose sense of where other people are coming from. But other cultural values are ones that we can share uh, and, and put on the table with one another. And maybe you have a value that I say, well, I don't call it that, but I've, I've got a similar approach to mutual obligation and hospitality to the, to the other, for example, right? In my own Jewish tradition, I think about the, the overwhelming importance of, of widows and orphans in the Hebrew Bible, like, are you looking out for the people most marginalized? And are you ready to welcome 
others into your home. These are these are values that persist through the Hebrew Bible. And those are values that I think have correlates in a whole lot of other cultures. And then when we start talking about them, we start figuring out, okay, those are the ones that I don't really quite understand, but maybe look kind of interesting to me. And those are the ones that, man, I got something so much like that. Why don't we think about those things and use them? Well, then, so I hope that becomes a bigger global conversation. So is that the goal for you? Yeah, I, I feel like I've transitioned in 20 years from doing things that were just intellectually interesting to me to doing things that I think in some respect have practical import, that I want a kind of public conversation about what we want and a public conversation that says these are the things that are valuable and interesting um, and I want as many people involved in that conversation because different people have different um, commitments and gifts and everything else. And some people are, you know, wonderful public speakers or they're wonderful bloggers or they're wonderful podcasters like yourself, you know, like people have different things they bring to the table. And I definitely want as many of us as possible talking about what, what our technological values are. Well, it may well be the case that those in the listenership um, may contact you for further conversation who knows what scholars are eking out which or who knows who's doing what and that's part of the the joy of the podcast in terms of uh, in that it sort of um put gets the word out there right in the public sphere or teeny corner of the public sphere mind you new, new books network is not teeny by any stretch of the imagination i believe it has over 3 million downloads a month collectively. Uh, wow. Each channel will vary, obviously. Uh, from what I understand, in your religions is fairly popular. Um, don't ask me why, who knows? But... <laughs> <laughs> well, I certainly appreciate being here and, and an opportunity to talk with you and appreciate the work that you're doing and uh, inviting me to be part of that. Yeah, that well, thank you. Conversation. well, thank you for appearing on the podcast. Was there anything else about the book or your work that you wanted to touch on before we close for today? No, I think you asked a lot of like really lovely questions and I, I enjoyed the back and forth interchange and an opportunity to hopefully excite a few folks that they're thinking, hey, I want to know a little bit more about how we're all talking about AI, you know, in a different context. And so I appreciate that opportunity very much. Um, you are most welcome. Uh, if you're remotely interested in this topic, folks listening, uh, Check out Futures of our Artificial Intelligence, um, brand new OUP publication. Um, keep well, keep listening, keep contemplating, perhaps, perhaps, <laughs> whether or not uh, computation is consciousness. Take care.